Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight 2 is back. Happy birthday to Nightlight fan Angela. We're longtime groupies of each other. And I'll just have to say happy birthday to our newest listener. Can't get much newer than little Luke. Okay. Glad to be back doing live shows. Uh, maybe, maybe the work will slow down after returning to work. <clears throat> uh, I think I read about a book a week and booked exciting guests into January. So uh, even though we're on, you know, we just finished up a, uh, went like five, six week hiatus, uh, like I still need a vacation. Anyhow, um, Oak Island is a captivating show, and we'll find out over uh, the discussions tonight that the Four Corners region has its own secret treasure. We have three members of the Peralta Project joining us tonight. Um Robert Kesselring is a Vietnam veteran, um, missile systems engineer for Raytheon, and head of the Peralta Project. His son, Jason Kesselring, has a normal job during the week, become a weekend treasure hunter, and has been since uh, getting involved in childhood prospecting and our third guest is Wild Bill Blackwell. He is a retired entertainment attorney and has been interested in treasure hunting since the age of 10. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us on uh, Nightlight. Um, uh, so, you know, 
I'm going to need to look at some of the background information. Um, you know, you know, we've spoken a little bit about uh, gold ingots and pieces of eight and doubloons and all all that kind of stuff. And it sounds like we're dealing with uh, you know, Spanish and conquistadors in the desert southwest area. Um, okay, Robert, you're the historian of the group. Um, can you give us a little bit of background on you know, the mission statement for the conquistadors to come to the New World? Where they land? Um, and how did they eventually get into what is now Arizona? Sure. Real briefly, the Peraltos are a Spanish family. And after the Templars were disbanded, they formed up with the church through Portugal, got their estates back, and started fanning out as conquistador leaders. And they invaded the New World as the uh, replacements for the, the Templars, having been the survivors and the descendants. Um, and uh, that means that they went to South America and North America, and Cortez, of course, went over to the islands and was given a charter to go and invade Mexico, which he did. And uh, early about, I think, 1520s, he, he went into Mexico, and he discovered that uh, there was a lot of fury between the two tribes, and he enlisted local tribes as augmenting his army, and he took Mexico City. He killed the chief. Um, all of the gold that he had taken from them was put into bullion. It wasn't kept in art form. He also had baskets of emeralds. And he was pushed back out of the city by the Montezuma's brother in a war, and all that was still in the plaza. And when he got back in, he only found four bars of gold, period. Now, a fifth bar has been found where they tried to escape. Some of the soldiers were carrying bullion, and when killed, they were falling off the bridge. And recently, one was found in Mexico. So they have a, a solid example of the kind of thing that, that Cortez saw and lost. And a big mystery has always been since then, uh, as far as the Peraltos were concerned, where did that go? Mm -hmm. So uh, Cortez initiated a, a movement with uh, the uh, Jesuit priesthood and said, I want uh, Deniza, Fray Marcos Deniza, to go up and try and find what these Indians are talking about, hit having come from, and maybe went back to Cibola, the seven cities of Cibola. And um, not to go too lengthy, that didn't pan out for them, and they sent Coronado, and he explored the southwest. He also went over as far east as Kansas. He went all through the area. He came back and said, well, it's not, it's not going to be where Fray Marcos said there's 200,000 Indians because we ain't going there. <laughs> he had all these rich people with him, and they didn't want to lose them. Um, and we didn't find anything other than where we didn't go. And where they didn't go was South Phoenix, and um, the Pima Indians that live there have a legend which deals with the disappearance of an entire people. Today we understand that plague can be transmitted by first contact. And that whole area was filled in with people, and the Pimas watched them just fall. And the word uh, hokum happens to stand for dead man. Ho hokum means plural, meaning dead people. 
Um, and that's what they were trying to refer to. And archaeologists looked into it. They saw the older civilization. They didn't see what Fray Marcos had seen. But there happens to be seven villages in South Phoenix that that was belonging to. Um, the bottom line is that got them aware of, to go look. And the Peraltas established San Jose, California as their cattle ranch. They initiated and owned major parts of California area like LA and San Francisco. But another fraction of the people in the family moved into northern what is now Mexico called Sonora and the area in Arizona was called the frontier or the fronteras. However, to have full access between California and that, they had to go up and into New Mexico. And in 1610, Peralta was the second governor. First governor abandoned the fort and went looking for gold. But the second father, the, uh, uh, person there, Peralta, built the first church in 1610 and established the site for Santa Fe. So by 1610, we have this family sitting in New Mexico, Arizona, and California, and they are in charge of licensing people to explore other areas. And if anybody wanted to go look for gold or do anything else, they had to have a permit. And it had to be run through army patrols. And the king of Spain written, uh, had written a whole bunch of laws which said, hey, the Indians can operate mines. There's no racism there. But by the way, uh, these are what you have to pay people. This is how many people are allowed your teams. Details, details. But he made sure that the mercury for the mining process went all the way from South America up into that area at almost cost or less, so that we'd get him gold. And so the Peraltas were involved in this mining, mostly silver, and the Santa Fe Trail was built to go up and over and through Utah, Nevada, and down into California. So that whole region huh. became explored, okay? And they kept uh -huh. building up stockpiles, and from the 1610 until 1751, there was massacre after massacre. The Indians would get mad at them and then drive them out, and, and hordes have been stashed, and hordes have been since then found. The conquistadors had faded out, as you see, once this was turned over to the Jesuit priests, and the Jesuit priests went in and tried to keep the Indians peaceful, teach them how to live in a pueblo. And so they were still doing all of this, and by 1751, they made a mistake, and they started another war with the Pima Indians, and everything that was in storage in the churches, in the missions, as well as in these mining areas, had to be formed up into a convoy and taken off into the wilderness and hidden because they couldn't carry it with them. It was too heavy to get away from these Indians and take it with them. And that was called the treasure of the Church of Santa Fe. Now, the interesting question is, the Indians that vanished, that Fray Marcos saw, also were called Zuni, just like the ones in New Mexico. And the ones in New Mexico did the mining for the Peraltas in the superstitions, which is outside of Phoenix. So there's a whole a lot of buried information that takes you up to 1751. And this war and this treasure get embroiled. The king of Spain settles. He wants his treasure returned to him. He invested all that in the churches and everything. And he's got his share of the gold that was in the mines. And you know what he did? He did the same thing that happened to the Templars hundreds of years before. He issued a, an awful order 
that every one of those priests was going to be arrested, all of them in one day. Death marched across over Mexico to the boats, brought back to Spain, and tortured. And he wanted to know where his gold went. They didn't know. The reason they didn't know is the guys that went on the convoy were on a one-way trip, and they were killed. Okay, so now you get into legends. You know, uh-huh. story themes. But what you don't realize is the amount of gold in the superstitions is real. And the question is, were those Indians in the Phoenix area using gold? And the answer is yes. They were making small pieces of jewelry. And they made a little thing that was like what the Greeks have. It's called a strigle, but it's what you wipe sweat off of yourself with for cleaning. And these were all gathered up by Montezuma. And Montezuma's father was the first Aztec king to hoard treasure, and Montezuma's son, Montezuma II, also followed this procedure. They had a trade. They had trade routes that extended all the way up the area these uh, Spanish were going to absorb, all up into Utah. They knew everybody. So um, the king of Spain got real upset, and he turned around, and he gave the Peraltas control of the mines that were south of the Superstition Mountains. And uh, that was 1753, and he had all those Jesuit priests arrest about 1756. And he wanted to know where it was, but one of the maps that we have that's in the books that you can read on DesertUSA.com talks about the signs, the symbols, and where this uh, record exists in maps and documents about the treasure of the Church of Santa Fe. But what's interesting is that the earliest ones was called treasure of the Indians. And these people that were living in South Phoenix area in those seven villages and collecting gold were put under pressure, according to the Zuni, put under pressure to go get gold out of the mountains and send it down to the Aztecs so they didn't have to contribute people for massacre. That was their buyout, keeping loaded with gold. And, and, and so that's all gone. They died in, in a plague. And the whole question of well, what is where requires one thing. Go in and look. Do searching. Do archaeology. It's, it's not it's like Indiana Jones. You don't just go out there and start digging holes with you know big burrowing machines or blowing out mountains and stuff and, and you don't walk around the corner and oh, here's this big stack of gold and stuff your pockets. Um, Bill can go on to that in great length. So can Jason. And I began the project in 2009. I've learned that the Peralta family was still coming into the United States, going into the superstitions, hiring local help to go out and look for the mines. They had tin-type photographs as late as 1924. So you're looking at something that spans from Cortez wondering where all this gold went that was the treasure of the Indians, and then a map showing up dated 1751, talking about it. And then 1753, these boys are now given the mines and are going in the mountains. And Bill can talk to you later when we're no longer constricted by non-disclosure agreements, what we have found. But if you go to DesertUSA.com, you'll see all of the physical evidence and stuff that we found that justifies this. And to sum it up, the poor Peralta family, in between there, between 1924 and 1751, suffered terribly. 
It's as if this treasure was cursed. They um, they had huh. built up operations. They were working with the Apaches, and they were they were all killed to the, except for four sons in 1847. And it took them a long time to get up enough energy to decide they were going to do it. Now, why did they keep this secret? Because they were trying to secede from the king of Spain. Then when they became Mexico, they wanted to secede from Mexico and being their own country because they got the raw end of all commerce. Everybody wanted to rip them off. And they're up there up in the frontier and they're just paying extreme prices for garbage. So along comes the Civil War. What do you think they did? They joined the Confederacy and said, we want to secede and we want to be our own nation when this is over with. Okay, Jefferson Davis agreed. He ordered General Silby out of Texas to go to Santa Fe, and his direct orders were, help them get the treasure, help them find the gold mines. We need that gold to buy munitions for the Civil War. And they went out there, and everybody was killed a second time. The third time oh. was, was during, uh, in between, the gold rush. The gold rush was outside of San Jose, and when that 1849 gold rush happened, it was on their ranch. They were asked, why aren't you mining this gold? They said, we make more money from, from our cattle. Why should we go, go destroy the environment? They drove them out and down to south to bound to Baja. Every single Peralta involved in this activity, from joining Cortez up till about the Civil War, was either killed, lost everything, just wiped out. And the last one to die through this curse was the grandson that survived, sole survivor of the second massacre during the Civil War. And he made it back with $60,000 in gold. And he went back up later when he was in his 30s. And he's up there just whistling Dixie with two friends, digging away at a mine. They come down to their camp. And who did they run into in their camp, sound asleep and exhausted? Jacob Waltz, the lost Dutchman, the Dutchman himself. They offered to show him the mine. He looked at it. He said in his own deathbed sentence, uh, uh, comments. Hey, I got gold fever. I blew it. I just, I just, I couldn't help back. I just, I, 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 I wasted all three of them, buried them in the sand, took the mine. So, <laughs> I'm not exactly suspicious, but I will tell you that there's so many people interested in this that anything is possible. And the Spanish were no fools either. They knew that if they weren't there, they had to protect this stuff. So just like in Indiana Jones. They set booby traps that are built out of natural material, which Bill can vouch for. So that's basically okay. taking you back from Cortez up to where we are. Okay. Uh, cap- that's just a, a, a captivating story. Okay. So as you, know, you were discussing all the you know, Santa Fe Trail and all the hundreds of miles of uh, routes all, all across the uh, desert and you know to California. Um, you know you can't just walk and Mm-mm. yeah the, these areas and you know, do, do some sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, test pits. Um, you, know, you have to use equipment, uh, a lot of uh, journals, you know, kind of get an idea of you know about where 
you know the path is leading them. Yeah, um, Robert or you know, uh, you know, like the whole about the process. Uh, yeah, there there's a lot of preparation that you have to uh, be going through before you uh, step foot in this area. Plus you're bringing your uh, scientific uh, backgrounds, you know, to help narrow down where you are going to uh, search for, you know, the gold ingots. Uh, Can can you, uh, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about how you're using your Raytheon experience to help find where, where you want to look and uh, Bill and Jason could chime in too. Okay. Just uh, a little background. I'm a a member of something that's called Simbic High, which is an honorary invited meeting. Uh, Society of scientists, research people. And um, meaning that I've shown, I know how to do research and I, Happened to be flying one day to Phoenix, about 10,000 feet from Texas. Look out the window, and I see a huge white arrow carved into the ground. And I went, what is that? Tucked that away in my memory. That was about 97. And in 2009, I was reading a book, and it had a map in it. And in there was that arrow. And it was on a map to gold mines in the superstition and it was turned over by some Spanish members of the families here to a person that was on the border in order to try and gain access way back in the 30s. Put me in touch with the Superstition Mountain Historical Society because the author of that um, was the husband of one of the members, and she was basically concatenating a large amount of research, and she discussed many of these things. But it was the maps and the detail that really boggled me. So I immediately went over to the Superstition Mountain Historical Society's museum outside of Apache Junction. I went in, and they had the stone maps that we're talking about there. And they had a collection of at least 25 maps on the wall. My jaw dropped. It's a mother load of information that is from the participants, not legends, not stories, facts. Well, to somebody that's used to doing research, you know, everybody wants to go after the author's original documents. And that's when I found out that's how they got these maps. What they had done was they built an archive operated and known by this organization. And Jeff, um, I mean, um, Craig Davis is the uh, curator of those records. Okay. And he lives in Mesa, Arizona. So I told them what I was doing, and I met a gentleman, uh, Mr. Reinhardt, who uh, politely introduced me, and he showed me all the stones that were not on display. And I began slowly to learn, you know, where did these things come from? And I discovered that they had kept and were given all of the original journals, notes, and field work by all the people who had published on this subject. Not only did I have the ones from the Peraltas, I had it from everybody that had been thinking about this for 
gee, 60 years of work laying before me, un, uncollected, un, un, uncollected, just they, they had it, and they had a wall of binders that where they were, you know, taking pictures, and he had a whole crew of people for 20, 30-odd years where he went out. This is Greg Davis. He had gone out as a, as a member of the teams. And to give you an example of who's who, Ted DeGrazia, the artist, was one of the members doing treasure hunting with them at the museum that he would go out with in the superstition. Okay? Um, he's a Southwestern artist. Now, most of these people are now gone. And, but all this literature is there. All the photographs are there. And I just, I said, tell you what, I said, your photographs are going to fade. I will, I will digitize them and put them on a computer for you so that they're not lost. Same with all your maps I can get access to and so forth. And I need to dig up this and that. And I told him why. And I explained how the maps worked. And they agreed to let me do that. And I became a member of their uh, museum. And um, for four years or so, I just poured through that information and, and kept digesting and going out in the field and saying, is this there? And there are at least three or four maps, which I detail in my, my online articles at visitusa.com, how I went through the process. Technology-wise, you have to have a pair of eyes that is sixth sense um, and, a, and, a, and a subconscious that you've learned to listen to. You have to know something simple, for one. When you're going out and you're looking for this stuff and you're looking around you, there's an awful lot of stuff laying about the land. It's been disturbed or whatever. But every now and then, you find yourself staring at something and you don't know why. You've just stopped and you're staring and your eyes won't leave the scene, but you don't know why. And you have to realize that something else has been seen in the back of your mind. It's trying to alert you to that's important to you. This is part of how people survive for 100,000 years or so, but that is the very first tool you have to have. You have to give a, a sense, and Bill can tell you how that's worked. And he's got it, and Jason has it. And we go out and we teach each other and we say, look, can you tell this has been disturbed? It's like if you're on the East Coast and you're looking for a mound. You know, a mound from a hill. So you start looking for very simple pieces of evidence, maybe some pottery, uh, worked stone, uh, in our case, maybe some gold ore, old campfires, other graves, all kinds of material. But once you've got things and you've got a map, generally of what you've found, you're going to have to know how you can keep track of all those details to see the whole picture. So I've learned how to use Google Earth and overlays. I put those maps in there and tried to uh -huh. locate everything that's on them into Google Earth, so I see 100 square miles of activity. And this is an activity seen easily. Uh, I've had to do two helicopter um, uh, aerial surveys and, and one by a Cessna, and to fly over those areas that are really hard to get to quickly to verify, yep, what's on the map is there, sure enough, and map everything out and say, yes, this solution is valid. You can go to all those places and see all these things. So in the articles, I put in GPS coordinates. Now, as, as I decided I've got to put feet to ground, I have to have a tool. 
because it's in a wilderness area. And Makes I'm sense. not equipped to look. I'm not equipped to look under the ground. And if it have to have a permit to do digging, so I don't disturb something, or if there's going to be graves or whatever, I got to know in advance what I'm dealing with. So mm-hmm. as a missile systems engineer, okay, my expertise was in guidance, but also in radar, and thermal imaging, and laser designations, and all of those technologies. I said, you know. I, there's got to be some updated technology other than just metal detecting. And I went out and I looked. And um, in 2011, they were coming up with this whole new branch of tools called scanners. And basically, it measures the electric and the electric, the electric field that's coming down from the Earth up through the surface, and also the magnetic field coming up from underground and through the surface. And the sensors tell you what's the biggest objects closest to the surface right now where you're standing. And you take a 3D picture. The one that we uh, bought, I called the Germans. I do speak German. I talked to them. and They told me how it was built. And, yeah, indeed, what we've got there works this way, blah, blah, blah. Here's how to calibrate it. And we were out there in the superstitions making sure this thing would work there. I said, really? And so we talked about the characteristics of the rock and the soil and how the gold is found, how you find tunnels. And I got this manual that I created for people interested in this kind of a device. And I taught to, to Jason and to Bill and how to use it. And uh, Bill's going to be getting one, I understand, of his own here shortly. But we've been using it, the same model, ever since 2011. And uh, we scan underground. And we've had a learning experience there as well. And so I've jokingly said, well, guys, it really comes down to the scan's only going to tell you whether or not it's interesting enough that you're going to want to dig to see what it truly is. <laughs> it's like an x-ray. We've got to go explore this node or whatever. Uh-huh. But it all requires you to have a sense of, of, of where to look because it's going to depend on realizing, just like you're looking for Indian ruins or a lost trail that somebody had made, all of which is the same things that we're looking for. You've got to have a little sense of this is what they were doing. And to do that, we had to learn secret signs and symbols and communications that were like schematic symbols. But instead of electronics, it was what you're looking for, what's around you. So we've done okay. Uh, J- Mark, Jason, you want to step in and t- you know, t- t- tell us how how are you enjoying uh, th- these uh, weekend adventures that y- you're going on using the gadgets and yeah, j- just expanding uh, on so- some of the. Uh, your your initial you know gold prospecting uh, you know things you were doing as a, a kid to using all these gadgets out in the desert looking for um, you know real hi- historical uh, treasures. You have Jason there? Well, yeah. Um, you know, I have a good time going out. Because, yeah, it's definitely a weekend thing. you got to have a job to be able to 
go out and do this kind of stuff. You know, it's kind of like, you know, being able to, you just got to have, you just got to be able to get out there and have the ability and the tools. And once you get out there, yeah, you see a lot of the history, a lot of the stuff that's going on. You start making the mental images. Um, You start kind of seeing things that, you know, like you get in that third eye or whatever, or, yeah, you're just kind of staring at a, a rock formation or, you know, tunnels or just something that's just like, oh, that's, and one thought that's kind of cool, and another thought, well, there might be something to that. So it's always fun getting out there and uh, just, you know, getting all this stuff down. And then kind of like the guys in the museum where we're creating our own field work and techniques, collecting all the data and, you know, applying it. And then, you know, in the end, it's boots to ground to get out there to find out what's going on. So it's always a journey and an adventure and I have a good time. And we're all, you know, good friends and we've been doing this for a while. So it's fun to get out and do stuff with them too. Cool. Okay. And, uh, Bill, how, how, how do you like your, uh, expeditions to this, uh, out in the desert, uh, uncovering uh, history. Well, I tell you, it's, it's given me a second lease on life. I'm, this is, uh, it, as Robert said, and as I've said in the past, this is an Indiana Jones adventure. This is one of the greatest things mm-hmm. you could ever be a part of if you get into this and you are and you are fortunate enough, like I have, to meet someone like Robert Kesselin. He wrote two books. I, I read his articles on... Uh, on Desert uh, USA, and, and as soon as I read those, I go, this guy knows what he's doing. And I had known about this since I was 10 years old and, and uh, when my father first took me out into the superstitions. Um, and uh, uh, corresponded with Robert and uh, flew out and met him after about four months. And uh, I said to him, you know, this would make a, this would make a great documentary, you know, because uh, he, he nailed it. He, he, we know where things are. And uh, – and and so we we got together. I, being an entertainment attorney, I uh, was able to uh, connect with people in the business. Uh, Robert May, uh, who won an Academy Award for his documentary on Robert McNamara, Bob Brown, who's produced uh, 16, 17 films uh, in Hollywood, and they came aboard, and off we went. And uh, uh, so I, 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 the viewers, I'd like them to know that the, the project was called Lust for Gold. Uh, we just got it sold to. Uh, I was told by the producers that we just got a distribution deal, and um, uh, and it's going to be aired uh, December or January, uh, maybe on Hulu. Uh, that's still not clear yet. But uh, we have a Facebook page. People want to go to our Facebook page and type in "Lust for Gold." You'll see snippets of our documentary, uh, some uh, some pictures of us, uh, the people that were on it, put it together. Uh, and uh, it, it was it was a fun project. And they shoot, and we were in the superstitions for 17 days. There is unbelievable stuff out there. And you were talking about uh, the tra- the Santa Fe Trail going in through Colorado. I've got a young kid right now up in Colorado in a canyon, where uh, uh, unbelievable stuff. This this kid has just walked onto uh, 200 foot owl statues, uh, 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 15 foot eagles. Uh, uh, ducks that are seven feet high. Ducks means uh, king's treasure vaults. Uh, uh, it's like a zoo up there of statues that these Spaniards uh, 
uh, cut uh, craftsmen, uh, and they're all markers as to certain treasures. Uh, and it, it's unbelievable what he stepped in, stepped into. Uh, I just got off the phone with him a, a, a little bit ago, and I plan to go in there in April uh, uh, with the scanning technology. And, and I think we're going to come across something that National Geographic would love to have in their magazines. But um, but getting back to, to Robert, when we got into the superstitions and saw all this stuff, uh, um, uh, markers, uh, tri- stone triangles pointing up canyons uh, and, and knowing what's up there, uh, it, it's been an incredible journey. Uh, we've, we've also ventured outside of the superstitions uh, and uh, have, have formed a, uh, a, a partnership, and, and there's a, a, a material outside of the superstitions where – which was a huge mining district. And I've become fortunate to meet with some other people that are out there that have also located some stuff. And so this is unbelievable. Uh, this was uh, the amount of treasure that's still out there. Uh, and um, so anyway, uh, it's, a, it's a journey, and it's a fun journey, and uh, uh, hopefully um, it's going to be a very rewarding journey. <laughs> okay, well, Bill, you... You just mentioned the uh, triangular stones and um, the statuary, the seven-foot-tall duck statue. Um, yeah. it, so, you know, when Robert was talking about all the um, maps at, at the uh, – Superstition Mountain Museum and um, looking at all all the you know, numerous maps there. Okay, you have you know uh, the locations of rivers and you know, hills and you know, uh, buttes and things like that probably on the maps, but uh, are these uh the the statuary and some of the uh like photos you sent to us you know uh have you know, put as examples of you know the natural uh what seems to be natural markers that are going to be on the archive uh youtube archive uh, yeah. now are, are those Located on the the maps as well, or how are you reading the these um, natural signs? Okay, I understand your question. So, so let me break this down, uh, and, and Robert can chime in. There, there, you, you've got you've really got two different eras of mi- uh, eras of mining out there. You've got you've got 16 to 1700s that are outside of the superstitions, and they're going up into Colorado and Utah. Lots of treasure in Utah. Okay. Uh, uh, then you have inside the superstitions uh, that are that are 1800s uh, from uh, the Peralta mining operation that was going on, uh, and. Uh, and, and and this is the the code. They were the Peralta stone maps and, and a code that Robert uh, cracked. And so when you get out, so you know the area. So you get out there and you start looking. 
Now, the first thing I ever found was was a was a was a thirty pound red triangular marker pointing up a canyon, and, and Jason was with me that day. And I just happened to stop and look down at my feet. We were heading up this canyon because uh, um, on one of the maps that Robert had created, uh, it said that there probably was a cache site up there. And, I, and by cache site, I mean, you know, the uh, uh, gold bars. And we just happened to be going up this kid. So we go to the canyon just to see if we could see if there was any markers. And I stopped to get a drink of water, and I looked down at my bottom of my feet, and here's this two-foot-by-two-foot-by-two-foot red Spanish treasure marker telling us to go up the hill. And so, and that's on the website. I sent that picture to you. Uh, and uh-huh. then so Jason and I started up the hill, started up the canyon. And Jason said, uh, there's, here's a triangle. It's a, it's a sight triangle. It, it, uh, sight triangles are uh, two arms that are split, uh, spread apart, and normally they've got, the, they've got the arms lopped off, and they've got a slash mark on the arms. And, and it tells you what direction to go. And we got behind that. And we started going up in the direction it told us to go. And we get up there, and Jason spotted this tall saguaro cactus with a cross in it and, and with a Roman numeral one. And now on Robert's oh. map, it was indicating – on Robert's map that he had created, it was indicating that, according to what his research told him, that there was one gold bar that was supposedly buried in that area and other things. But I'm just telling – I'm giving this as an example. And so um, uh, I went back two years later uh, with some with uh, with a couple of guys, and I had my loppers. Cause this is all this is all you know overgrown, and all, and all this cactus, and all these mesquite bushes, and sticker bushes, and everything. And and I went in and I cut away a bunch of this old, you know, all these old bushes and everything at the base of this cactus. And lo and behold, at the base of this saguaro cactus was a stone triangle laid out in the ground pointing to the base of that triangle. Well, I know for a fact that there's something buried there. Now, we haven't dug there. It's in the wilderness area, but we haven't dug there, but I know for a fact there's something there. So it, it, you're not going to have all these markers telling you to go to some place that, that, that there's nothing there. They, they, you know, they didn't just do this as a game. They did this because people were going to come back and collect you know, this treasure, and they were, they were never able to come back and collect it for various reasons. So that's an example of what you see here if you know what to look for. Okay, uh, Jason, Jason, what do you think of you – know, when you're go, going out on the, the uh, weekend, uh, what do you uh, think of all this information that's in the uh, – in natural world, it, it seems like there, there there was a lot of effort put into uh, shaping um, some of the rocks. I am uh, you know, maybe the uh, cactuses for clues of where uh, yeah people are to go. Uh, you know, Jason, what do you? What are your thoughts on um, when you're out there and you're looking around, absorbing all that you see? Well, a lot of the information and things you you know learn to look for come out of the different books, and you know, um, Dad's reference to 
books by Charles, like Charles Kenworthy and information from different sources and all that, where they just teach you that, you know, these guys are out there mining and they had certain requirements for certain, you know, things for like the king when he's out traveling around for him to be able to you know, market and see it from a distance away. So these things are all told. And so you just kind of get out there and you just start looking around and, you know, you try to put yourself in their time, their technology based kind of stuff. So, you know, just trying to think, all right, well, 200 years ago, you know, with these big, tall 20, 30, 40 foot, you know, not 40 foot, but, you know, really tall cactuses, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, they weren't that big, you know, 200 years ago, they're little tiny things. So you just, you know, try to go back in your mind and look at the landscape and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, you just, you just kind of start warping back. You can feel yourself and, you know, you're out there having a good old time. And it's, it's just really a spiritual thing you start tuning into. You start, you know, kind of feeling, like you say, the vibes. And, you know, depending on how far you want to go with it, you start getting in tune with some, maybe some of the animals or maybe some of the spirits or just any of the energies that's coming out of the grounds. And, you know, you just, it kind of leads you to it. So it's just, I, I it's always a great feeling to kind of go out there and, and discover, you know, oh, look at this, you know, big tall, uh, you know, just uh, uh, Jason, <laughs> how how old do cactuses live? Like, are are they manipulating the like, you know, the right hand side of the cactus? You know, has you know, uh, is, has yeah. one of the arms pointing down? Yeah, like. Do, do they live to be like four or five hundred years old? I, I don't know. Never yeah, been no, out not there. that long. I know it's. A, I want to say it's at least a hundred, two hundred years. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but they live for a while, and that's why we're kind of finding these cactuses that have been marked from two hundred plus years ago. And okay, okay. You know, the books tell you from the reading. There's like um, uh, treasure book hunter guys that. They tell you that, yeah, go out there and look for these cactuses. They've got one side lobbed off, maybe be pointing in a direction of kind of off from the canyon. Maybe it's got a couple rings around it to kind of tell you other little clues and which ways to go, you know, mm-hmm. um, ones that are, you know, fun to look for, the ones that look like gun sights. So when you're standing back and you're looking at it, you got the two up in front of you, and then you got the, the one kind of at the end of the barrel kind of pointing at something for you. So just um, – yeah, they, they definitely use a lot of the landscape, and they just try to enhance what's there. Never fully, like, you know, disrupt or blow up or, you know, whatever. But, you know, so, yeah, maybe an extra little cutout here, some, you know, extra little things would, you know, create signs and markers and little cuts in the triangles and the different signs that are out there, yeah. Mark, interesting. Mark, let me, let me, let me give you yeah. another example. We, we, we've got sure. – uh, uh, a friend of ours out there that, that discovered a dig site uh, a number of years ago, and uh, and and uh, we went over to that area, and uh, I started from what Robert had taught me. Start scanning the saguaro cactuses, see if you see anything that's lopped off. And I started looking on the horizon. Sure enough, here's a saguaro cactus with its arms lopped off. Now I didn't know what I was going to find, but I knew that that was a marker, and I went up to it, and I stood behind it, and. It, and its arms were lopped off. It had the slash mark on it, which means go forward. And I started walking down the hill. And down the hill, about 40 yards, I came across a, a, a semicircular uh, set of stones with a triangle 
in the middle of it. And now this triangle was um, uh, about uh, uh, 12 inches by 12 inches or 10 inches by 10 inches by 10 inches pointing towards the direction of this gentleman's dig site. And I started following that. And I came across another triangle that was about six inches by six inches by six inches. The smaller the triangles get, the closer you are to finding what it is that, that's buried there or stashed or, or cached. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when, you, when you're able to look for these things, it, it's not hocus pocus. The, the, these, this, this was the way that they, you know, had to mark these things so that when – the the um, uh, the extraction team. I'll just put it that way. When the extraction team was going to come back and get the gold that was left there, they had to find these places. So it's just things that you learn. And you know, we've got a site out there right now. We there's got a fi- near where we ha- another site. It's got a 15 foot eagle there with his arms spread and 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 triangles and 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 uh, 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 turtles. And, and and turtles, the Spanish would use turtles to, to to tell you that you were near treasure. Well, this thing's filled with all this. It's like a zoo, and and so it's pretty it's pretty spectacular. Once you figure out what to look for and you find one of these sites, you know that you're onto something. So, um, but it's learning to you know learning to look at the land and land and these saguaro cactuses, mm-hmm. and 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 there's you know there's a reason for that. So and it works. Come in. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, Robert, um, you know, we we've heard uh, a, a little bit you know, from a previous guest about you know the uh, importance of the superstition mountains to the. Uh, Hohokam uh, peoples. Uh, did, did this uh, Spanish or, or the conquistadors ha- have the same uh, reverence for the mountain? Like, I, I, okay, it, it's interesting to uh, you know, look at why so many different cultures seem to have been drawn to this mountain range. Are they like you know really high in elevation or you know? Well, let me give you some some quick background. Not too much. Okay. The Superstition Mountains are actually a supervolcano, not unlike the uh, one oh, that's wow. up there at Yosemite. It's very okay. big. It would resemble it in many ways, except that it's much more volcanic and it hasn't had time to erode. But I guess the uh, Abruptions occurred about every 50,000 years. Um, the government did a, a, a test to see how much mercury was out there, and it's got 16 times more mercury just coming off in vapor inside the mountains, as in one of the richest gold mine areas in Arizona, which is quartzite. And, in fact, the, uh, in, the um, American Indians consider it to be holy ground, and the current um, focus is held by the Apaches because when the others died off, there was no influence, and they had learned how to um, use guerrilla warfare against the Mexicans to keep them at bay. Um, 
as far as how far back and, and symbology and uh, appreciation, Cortez was once asked, "What's the what, what is the pathway to the to the conquistadors and the, and the Spanish heart?" And he says, "Gold. If you want to understand our heart, you have to understand our gold." And from that, the miners decided to use hearts, and the king of Spain did so too. That when they would set up an area like the superstitions or anywhere else all the way around the southwest, they would carve a heart, which Bill has seen. And as he said, mm -hmm. when it gets smaller, you're closer to your goal. I've got some that are six and eight feet tall. As Jason said, they like to enhance a natural feature. That is part of the Catholic religious training of the period, meaning that while you're looking at what Anglos did versus the Spanish, going way back. What you'll notice is that they would include places like with crosses and tell you that's where you've got to get down and say your prayers, and it's hallowed ground. They felt safe there. Um, other signs and symbols are all about their feelings going into a pure wilderness and sorting it out to safety zones, not safe zones, and they had an abbreviation or shorthand that they use um, for example, well, how, how do you do 50 yards or paces by the king? The king ordained anything that was going to be seen from long distances so they could get close. The dons that were the Spanish set up an agreement, agreement of basic symbols, all of the dons use, but locally on the ground, each site is unique. Why? Because as you said, the geology isn't always the same. And so what they would do, as Jason said, would be if they had to mark where the vault was and they wanted to use a duck, it has to be tall. The king of Spain dictated the size. That's why you see these features so big is they have to be seen from so far away because they would have a spyglass that you have to carry in a saddlebag to spot which way they're going. They might have a map following these uh, distances and know where they're going. They would use surveying equipment uh, uh, like you do if you were at sea, you know, to transit where the stars are. And they could calculate with about 20 measurements their position as accurately as a GPS today. So they did pretty good on maps and, and their notes. So they would see things and they would uh, alter them in accordance with who is in control and their orders, King of Spain, the Dons, or just the boss of this one mine. But they all use common things like crosses and other languages, this, uh, this, uh, this cryptic language that's, you know, like shorthand. Um, but the mountains themselves were probably not seen by the Cortez and uh, the conquistadors for a long, long time because Marcos de Frey had informed them that there were 200,000 Indians, and no matter how many people he set in, he couldn't cope because he couldn't get them across the Sonoran Desert safely with food and water. And Coronado was flooded with requests to go along, and he had a 1,000-horse train. And they were the upper middle class and the upper class kids that wanted an adventure. It was a political fiasco because he's got to haul these along, and you don't go to a war against 200,000 Indians with 1,000 to maybe 1,500 people. And that doesn't sound so like that, it's going to work out. It. Yeah, right. So the very few conquistadors ever saw the superstitions. 
but they didn't know that the Indians had died or moved out or run away from this plague. The Apaches moved in. They had been picking on the Mexicans afterwards, but they didn't have a way of moving fast because they were on foot. They didn't have the horse. They didn't have steel weapons. What did they have? They had uh, skins with stone inside to use on the end of a stick for a club, bows and arrows, and they had to walk or run. And they could cover maybe 25 miles a day at that. And so they would do trade. They'd meet people on the trail. Every now and then, everything was peaceful until finally somebody, you know, messed it up with an ambush, pissed everybody off. And the thing about the Apaches is that they have two um, loyalties, one to your tribe, one to your family. And that's not always the same because of intermarriage between the tribes. At the end of the time, and during the time of, uh, say, the Dutchman, for example, Geronimo was a Chiricahua medicine man. He wasn't a chief, but he was equally uh, uh, in control of the people because that's like being the Pope. Mm -hmm. And he considered the superstition mountains to be spiritually holy, as had been held by all the Indians in the vicinity. All the Indians knew you could always get food and water there, and the mountains talked. And at that time, they were called the Salt River Mountains because the river runs through there. And it's still volcanically unstable. And you'll be sitting there, and you'll feel rumbles, and you'll see rocks peeling off the walls while you're there. But it's just very colorful. You could see that in the pictures. It's, uh, it's quite a sight. So that it was set aside as a wilderness to be protected. And I consider it to be a school on the history of mm -hmm. Spanish-American uh, mining. Yeah. I, I, I've heard that there are some uh, petroglyphs mm -hmm. uh, it, on the mountain and you know in, in the area. Uh, do uh, any of the petroglyphs indicate uh, like? You know, carrying boxes and you know, something like uh, like oh. they they, no, they, they were, didn't do they, that. Uh, no, they didn't make pictures of people doing things. Okay. No. Yeah, what they would have is if it was Native American, it would be this is the symbol for what kind of game you can find here, like bighorn sheep mm -hmm. or deer, or there'd be a sign for water, like a spring, is it a regular spring, or is it just a runoff, like tanks where the rock says bedrock and it holds you water. Um, but the Spanish, on the other hand, used the shorthand. And a lot of this communication system was set up by the Templars. So a Templar cross indicates where, you know, they wanted to have a secret cache. And I have a photograph in my article of the stone on blacktop on which that's chiseled in. A couple miles away, it's in the desert, laid out. Uh, and uh, it had been replenished. The thing is to recall, if you've got something which, like the Latin Heart site, was opened up and marked in late clues and cues in the 1700s, the, the oldest map we have came out of a book of um, uh, uh, small uh, uh, 
what do you call them, tomes or whatever, by the priests that was in the 1700s. And um, the markings we're seeing on the petroglyphs include those dates, but they don't show pictures of miners. Now, what's interesting is that there's a, a problem with the human mind called pareidolia. That's what mm-hmm. gives you the ability to see the faces, you know, like in uh, ink blots or tree rings. Well, this mm-hmm. is what the Spanish would feel, you know, and they would have to mark it up a little bit to make it, oh, the treasure symbol that the king wants or warning sign or make it across so it's hollow ground. Um, however, the Americans that followed them were just the same, and they would go in on some of the original things that were done by the Spanish and mark them up and turn them into figures, turn them into peoples. And the one that's most talked about is in uh, Charlevoix Spring area, and um, it's actually seven maps, not not just one, and it's got a lot of the Indian symbols pecked into it, but a lot of it is been damaged. I went back to pictures that were taken 40, 50 years ago and pulled them up, looked, did a compare. And um, I found that there's a marker in there that says it's one kilometer in length and I measured it out on top of Bluff Springs and by golly, that was one kilometer and that tells you the scale for that whole set of maps. Bing! So that's the kind of uh, use of a lot of those things. They, they, people don't realize it, but the, the Mexicans, when they got their independence, abandoned the Spanish system because it changed depending on what city in Spain you were from. And they went to the metric system when it became Mexico. So all these guys that you're talking about were using meters. But people will make assumptions, oh, this meant that they were doing things the old Spanish way, or now they were using feet. What? So Perdolia sits in and Americans deface things or they add to things. And the older the records you can get to, to work with, the better off you are. Inter- it was very in- interesting about uh, you know, the, introducing the uh, feet uh, versus metric system. And, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I don't, Bill. Uh, I, I, I don't know. This might be more of a general uh, question for all three of you. Uh, okay. it's, since you did mention early in the show, um, you know the, the you know the Templars. Uh, is there some of the you know, like Templar Masonic uh, artwork? Uh, uh, that you're finding, uh, you know, like the uh, Cross of Lorraine or, uh, you know, like the Three Fingers Down, like for the uh, Mary Magdalene. You, are you finding anything like that out there in, in the desert? Um, I can well, say I haven't so far. Maybe they have. <laughs> I've yeah, seen a few things. Yeah, we have to understand who the mining uh, workers were that were going to read these symbols. Uh, they were Native Americans or the the working poor back in the villages, the pueblos. These these were not uh, blue collar workers. These were people that you might call home, and they were given a good wage and a good job and the food and everything. Um, but they wove 
uh, yucca plants for their own sandals when they were out there. You know, um, they were lucky if they had clothes. And for them to understand a lot of that was too arcane, you know. Yeah, they had to use things they were used to in terms of animals and, and church symbology. Church symbology comes from the influence of the Jesuit priests on converting the Indians to becoming Catholics. And so that symbology had more power than the Templars. But the, and the Templars, the, the Templars, only the highest cadre understood a lot of those symbols, not the soldiers down on the trenches. And the same was true with what happened with the King of Spain and on down. So he, he included some of those in his edicts about what you're going to use and where, but they're for long range. The guy in the saddle leading the group looking with his telescope. Mark, we've got, give me an we've got one or two. Yeah. Okay, to yeah. give an example, yeah, Mark. So, yeah. to give you an example, uh, uh, Robert was talking about seeing things from long range. You would call those eye catchers. In many instances, you'll see a white rock that's out of, that's out of work that just shouldn't be there. It's an eye catcher. Mm-hmm. We have a side out. Yeah. We have a side out there where they cut away. It looks like a door. We call it the refrigerator door. It looks like a door on the side of the. On the side of the mountain. Well, they did that. Well, why did they do that? Well, that was to draw the attention of who was going to come back for the treasure. There's the mountain with the door. Uh, there's there's a white eye catcher. You start seeing these things, and you st- and then you go and you start investigating. And, uh, and and so those you know as well as the triangle markers that we talked about, turtles, right. dogs, eagles, duck, owls, uh, you name it. Uh, yeah, uh, and they all had uh, they all had. Uh, uh, a, um, a reason for being there, and uh, and a definition of what it stood for, and 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 they knew this. So, um, uh, but from far away, and, and they would cut out, they would cut out a, a little portion of of a of a hill of of a mountain range. It'd be like a dip, like a U. The first time that Robert took me out into into the out into the superstitions on the outside of the superstitions, I I saw this range, and there was a U. And I go, that doesn't look natural. Now, I didn't know what I know today, but I said, that looks to me like it's a century hangout. Like they, someone would go up there and they'd look out for the Indians. Well, I, that's true. But it also meant that was a place that you would look for from long distance away. They would see the U. That meant there, there's there's a cash site over there. There's a, there's something there that, that, that that's hidden that's been put there. So um, it's it just it, these things you can see from far away. You just have to know what to look for, and you got to have the eye. Some people don't have the eye. I show I show my wife th- these statues. I go, look at this. This is a you know, this is a duck. This is an eagle. She's going, what? What is that? <laughs> what? <laughs> so so she, you know she doesn't have the treasure eye. Uh, Jason has a great treasure Jeff. eye. <laughs> so you know, Martin, anyway, Bill, Bill, you got to talk about. It's just a pushing damn rocks. You didn't hear that, that when you were trying to explain what the triangles were out there at the at the dig site. We had some people that were out there wondering what we were doing, and he showed them all these triangles that he had found. And they looked at him and said, "Looked at him and said, are you nuts? That's just a rock.'" Oh yeah. And I keep thinking no, well, I, these you, people you, are used to Walmart, I guess. Yeah. No, you can show people this on markers. I, 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 it, it, it's 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 just incredible what if you lock into this and you find an area. You know what you're going to find, and um, uh, and so uh, it's as I said, it's a, it's a great Indiana Jones adventure, and uh, 
We're not. We haven't even begun yet. <laughs> I, I wish I was forty <laughs> years old <laughs> instead of sixty-eight. I got a lot to accomplish here in the next five years. So uh, uh, it's it's a it, it's fun. That's all I can tell you. It's a lot of fun. Even if even so Bill, if we never brought you, anything up from the ground. <laughs> Bill, you didn't. You're not. You're not addressing one of the points real quick, which is. How do you survive and go out and do this? You want to describe to them your processes of what you've got to take with you and setting up and going out? Yeah. So where 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 we went, uh, where we go into the superstitions, um, it's a nine mile hike in. This is all it's all lava, um, and uh, so you have to be prepared. And and there's no communications out there. You 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 can't you use a cell phone. Now when we went in. Uh, in, in previous times, we we had a sat phone. You want to have some kind of communication, so you want a sat phone. Uh, they have uh, 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 devices now at REI you, that that will uh, uplink to a sat phone. You can, uh, people can watch your progress, but you want to have something. So if something happens to you, uh, you know uh, you, you can you can let, you alert people. You know you want to go in with somebody. That's important. You know there's a, you know I went in uh, last March. I went in by myself. I, there was a site. That Robert had found, where there's, he took a picture of this cliff. It's six tenths of a mile away from on the on the trail. He had his he had his zoom lens, 500 millimeter zoom lens, whatever. And when we blew it up, when he blew it up, here's the face of the king with a crown, and here's here's a triangle, and and here's a huge heart. Now there's something up there on that, and there's caves up there. Now there's something up there. Well, we haven't gotten up there yet. But in March, I went in by myself. I wanted to. I had some friends who were supposed to go with me, and they canceled at the last minute. So I went in. I wanted to see how far I could get to this place. And you know, and luckily I didn't start because rattlesnakes started coming out of the out, out of the out of the fabric. <laughs> it was a little too late yeah. in the year. But but so uh, and you have to have water. Now we uh, in the past uh, uh, we were a, uh, a you, there's a, a okay corral out there. Uh, uh, Ron Feldman, who's been out there for years, and his sons, uh, Ron and Jesse, they run all this. Uh, and, you know, and they, they take pay people into the superstitions. And, and, and so we were able to, to get some water in there uh, uh, on one occasion. Uh, one time we went in, and the, the streams were filled with water, uh, filled with water. So we had purifying packs, and we didn't have a problem. Uh, I went in there once, and there wasn't any water. Well, we only lasted there four days. You've got to have water. You can't be screwing around. And, and, and stay in there. So you've got to hightail it out. Too many people have died out there from heat exhaustion. Um, uh, so there's just things that you need to pre- be prepared for, you know, and um, it, it's, not, it's, it's not easy. You're just not going to go in there, you know. Well, you shouldn't go in on just a, a day hike and not know what you're doing. So it, it, it takes some preparation. And every time you go in, you learn something else. Okay, and Jason, when um, you you know you're going out there, you know what 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 are you getting getting from? The, are, are you ha- having a sense of uh, participating in history? Um, you know, you're walking the uh, footsteps that were been going through there for you know, hundreds of years. Uh, how's this 
impacting you seeing this uh, statuary and everything else that's going on? What are you coming away from this experience with? I mean, uh, this sounds really uh, fascinating. Well, and yeah, there's a few different things in there. So, um, you know, right, you get that sense of walking the trail where, you know, Dad was talking about, like, the massacres and stuff, so you start walking down these trails where you know that some of these last people were on their way out on the direction that you're going in, and they didn't make it. They were all killed out there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a sense of just all that. And then, you know, there's numerous people that have been out there and have documented stuff and just never really been, um, uh, what's the word? I don't know. It's just so it's, you know, to to write our own stuff and to put our own information out there, it's, you know, we get a good sense of out of that if, you know, people are interested and want to join the adventure. And um, then you got the other flip side of it, too, where, you know, it's just being with my dad, too. You know, it's some dads go fishing, some dads go hunting. And, you know, me and dad, we go out and we look for gold out in the middle of the desert (laughs) and look at all this ancient history. So it's a bonding experience too. Oh, great. And yeah, Bill said there were, uh, you know, more people have joined and, you know, they're uh, providing, uh, you know, their commentaries on the lust for gold uh, Facebook page. So it, it, it looks like you have, uh, yeah, a nice group of uh, guys that get together and uh, do that, do this uh, exploration. Yeah, it's kind of like a little mini club. We're all together, and exactly. They have a Mark. they have a group they call the Dutch Hunters. <laughs> okay. Mark? Yeah, they have a, they have a group they call the Dutch Hunters. Cool. Okay. Mark, let me uh, bring, great. Let me, yeah, Bill. Mark, let me bring let me bring something to everybody's attention that, that may be listening to this. You know, a, a lot of people out there in the Arizona area, uh, and 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 in other parts, you know, have known about what, what was called the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine, and and, and which okay. has been searched for, you know, since uh, you know since the middle eighteen eighteen hundreds, eighteen late eighteen hundreds, and and. Uh, 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 and, and and Robert was talking about Jacob Waltz on his deathbed and 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 telling about the people he killed and that you know it was a number of people um, and everyone's been searching for this and a lot of people don't know about the Peralta mining operation in the middle of the superstition where really that's that that's where all the hidden gold is but the, they they know about the lost Dutchman and 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 and, and he had sent four hundred thousand dollars worth of gold to his uh, to his sister. Her Wells Fargo's documents from I think and Robert will correct me if I'm wrong, but from like 1865 to 1869. Um, Robert, when he was doing his his two books and flying over a certain canyon and taking photographs, one of the uh, one of the clues that that Jacob Waltz had always mentioned was that there was a a foundation of a stone house uh, that was near his mine uh, up on a, up on a ledge. Well, Robert took a picture of it. He published it. He's the first person in the world 
to publish the picture of this house uh, or the foundation of this house, and you could see in the mine shaft. We, we, know, we knew where it was. Now, getting up to it is a whole different story. Uh, uh, again, I wish I was 40, 40 years old, um, and, it, and, and that's, you know, that's on a bucket list. But there were some gentlemen from Ohio that I think read Robert's books and put two and two together and got on Google Maps and whatever and figured out where it was, and they got to it. They put boots on the ground and got down to this mine that everyone's been looking for, and they put some cryptic pictures up, and they, had, you know, they didn't want to say too much because they're writing a book. But the moment I saw those pictures, I knew that they had found it because it, it's, it's, a different type of, it's a different type of rock formation, different type of coloration or whatever. And I, I, and I sent an email out to the guy. You know, congratulated them because everyone was going on the internet saying, "Oh, you guys are you know a bunch of hooey. You haven't found anything." And I knew they found it. I went and I congratulated them, and 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 so, but but and I told them, I said, "You guys are writing a book. Give Robert Kesselring credit when you do this because he was the first person that that took a picture of this stone foundation." And in the guy's own words was, "They had to find that foundation before they knew where they were going, and they had a drone." And they sent a drone up 10 feet, and they found the ledge, and there was the foundation, and boom, they found, they found the vault uh, or the mine. Uh, and he may have had several of them, but they found this one. So um, I, I, I want people to know that Robert is a great historian. He's done a lot of work on this, uh, and, uh, but for him, we wouldn't be here talking about it. Uh, and uh, so as I said, it's been a great adventure. And at the bottom of that canyon, he also mentioned – if you find the face, uh, uh, it looks towards my mind. Well, the first time we went in, Jason and I were going down the, the hill there. Well, boom, here was the face in the rock looking up, looking up this canyon. I, I, I sent you a picture of it to, to put, on the, put on your website. That was a great day. This was, you know, um, uh, this uh, corroborated, you know, another corroboration that this is real. And underneath that face is a heart that Jason spotted. Yeah, etched into the stone, which means you know means you know treasure. So uh, there's things out there, but uh, people need to know that um, uh, the, the gentleman you're talking to, Mr. Kesselring, is a great historian. So that's all I have to say. Yeah. So, uh, Robert, you know you're just getting underway. You know you have a small group of uh, people and. Harder for you to get the appropriate uh, 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 a lot of the appropriate uh, uh, equipment out there, but it sounds like the Peralta project ha- has made a lot of progress. Uh, how is this project um, being handled differently than, say, Oak Island or some of the other uh, TV shows that are also exploring uh, hidden treasure, uh, buried treasures. Uh, yeah, but but they aren't really. You know, they're finding that maybe Oak Island was a place. Where something was kept for a while, but it was moved on, and you know, Bill Mann has uh, spoken about that on uh, a couple of the shows. Uh, but how is how are you doing things differently than um, Lagine Brothers? 
Okay. I guess, first of all, they have access and they can dig. When I was ready to publish but hadn't, I went to the head ranger of the Tato National Forest. I had sent him preview copies, and he invited me in to talk to him, which is a rare event. And he looked at me and he says, you're kind of a different Dutch hunter, aren't you? Which I could have taken as an insult because I'm not looking for the Dutchman's mine. I fell on it. But I'm looking at the Peralta Project and the treasure of the Church of Santa Fe from 1751. And I said, well, no, I'm not the normal. I'm not the like the fellows over at Oak Island. And I would be much more happier if you would pull in archaeology departments from the universities, get some grants, and if necessary, shoot, call up the National Guard and post them out there because if we find something, you're going to need to move it. And he thought about it for three months. And he came back and said, the head archaeologist won't accept it. Uh, no. And one of the reasons is the law as it's written says that if it's in the superstitions and you find it, we have to take custody of it. And given the amount of bullion that you're talking about, we can't handle it. We'd much rather just stay buried where it is and try and prevent people from being able to take it out. I said, well, you're going to have to protect it. He says, I can't swear to do that because I can't even find volunteers to clean bathrooms at the national parks or at the Forest Service. He says, I'm underfunded. I'm understaffed. I can't do anything. I said, well, you're going to have to try. And I suppose that right now, as you know, with all the forest fires, that pretty much eats up everything he's got in the way of staff and budget. So this remains unprotected. Um, and having failed, I said, well, then you're going to have to deal with um, my army. And he said, well, what army is that? And I said, well, I'm a scientist, actually. And I publish in order to have my work validated. And there's going to be very greedy people going out there to try and get rich. They're going to think that's going to be the answer to all their problems. I said, I'm more interested in the history, the uh, uh, the documenting of this communication systems and the cryptology that they were using and the techniques of actually doing the mining and storing living underground. That's what the Apache said to them nuts. These guys always go and hide in the mountains. They, they don't live outside and, and campfires. They, they dig tunnels and they live in them. They're not human beings, they're animals. So um, there was this whole revolution in culture on how to survive. And it dawned on me, it's going to sound dumb, it sounded to me like we need to take a good look at our history as a species of how we've gone to totally raw new terrain, which hasn't been too often in the last several hundred years, and if we're going to go to the moon, Mars, Venus, or where have you, uh, they're going to be up against the same problems, access to water, to food, to shelter, too far away to go get some at uh, this market. You're going to have to be independent. And so what were the issues that they were dealing with has been the pushing agent behind mine, not treasure, not gold. But, oh, by the way, if it's there, I'm not an idiot, and I'm going to treat it as an archaeological material unless it's still native and raw material, and I'll try to file a claim. Unfortunately, in wilderness areas like the superstitions, you can't do that either. You can file the claim. You can't work it, so you can't keep it. Um, so I looked at the, uh, the whole project. I said, you know, just in the superstitions alone, it's a 10-mile by 10-mile area. They were staffing with like 120, 200 people. 
if you just take a look at the maps that I've got, there's a little river that's halfway between Tucson and the superstitions, and it's called Florence. And it used to be that Indian village that we were talking about earlier, the Pima. And what the Spanish would do is they would go there, have a big luau, big party, right? Whoopee. And um, that was this kiss off of civilization. They'd get themselves stocked back up. They'd drive their herds and everything else north up into the superstitions. And they ha have a map that they follow that goes from that village up to and into Bluff Springs Mountain, which is right next to that petroglyph that we just talked about, which is seven maps. Mm -hmm. And I decided that that area, you can dig. So I can look at what they did going into and then working around the superstitions. I can't dig in them. So what I said is I'm going to hope documents will stand, that people will respect our history and the superstitions, but I don't put a lot of stock in the fact that, that they're not going to try. And so I didn't publish how deep things are. I told you where. I didn't tell you how far you're going to have to dig, right? And mm -hmm. so people can go there, and if it's on the surface, they're going to see it. And and that makes the point for people being to decide whether or not we're actually talking about something that's real. But south of the Superstition Wilderness area is this area that was the mines that were given to the Peraltas in 1753. And that includes where the treasures of the Church of Santa Fe disappeared and everyone was killed in 1751. So we shifted from the end of the project, which was like during the Civil War. We're working our way back in history. We're back where just after the conquistadors, the priests were sent north to go up and there's a little um, structure that we've gone to and we drive by that many of the people call a visita. Now, a visita would be nothing more than a stone house that would be scrapped together, open air, has a cross, a little altar, and a priest would make his, you know, tour to around the wilderness there to try and talk peace to the Indians, keep them happy, keep them off the warpath, teach them how to be a good Christian, and he would baptize their babies. Now, this is 1700s. Okay, it's like 1710. And they would set these things up, and there's one that was bulldozed by a guy that was looking for treasure. It's near where we were. It tells you that, okay, this is where they were using the Pima Indians to do some mining, and they were peaceful. They were all cooperating. They were, you know, maybe somewhere intermarrying because some of them were Zuni Indians from New Mexico and such. So, you know, this is a cultural thing. This is a, a, a how do people form alliances in, in a wilderness, people that have been there are going to have to receive new guests and they're going to bring technology with them that they didn't get to bring with them. That's what we're looking at in our future. And here's an example we're looking at where that was done. But the communications and the symbology, like I said, are always going back to what do you see locally? What do you know? What is your, your faith? What is it that grabs your attention? What's the pareidolia to tell you to watch out for? And so in that context, you start to see how I can map this to the future migrations that we're going to have as a people. But at the same time, if I'm lucky, I can document how we got there. And the biggest, the biggest will be, would be, Hey, here's something they left behind. Maybe the treasure church of Santa Fe. And we, we would hand antiques over to our heirs, you know, the world. They'd be able to see it. That's, that's what's 
probably different, and we're totally independently funded. We're not grants. We're not on, you know, GoFundMe sites or anything like that. It's coming out of our own pockets. That's how we're different. Okay. So, uh, yeah, you, Mark? yeah, you've used. Oh, yeah, yes, Bill. Well, I just I wanted to give another example. We, uh, we um, okay, of things that we things we found that have led to things that, that because of Robert's ability to read some of these uh, signs that you were asking about before. Um, I happened to be out at a certain site, and I uh, uh, for for a couple of days uh, to dig and, and to explore, and I had taken my loppers. And because you know, all these cacti, all the, you know, all these bushes have grown up for all these hundreds of years. Well, there's stuff behind these bushes, and Robert had indicated it looked like there was like a stone wall behind this these set of bushes. So I went out there for two and a half hours, and I cut away all these bushes, and all this cactus, and everything. You know, it's you know been growing for all these years. And lo and behold, here's a booby trap. Here, here's a killstone. Here's this big boulder with a linchpin underneath it. Uh, and you know, there's people running. Uh, anthropology uh, uh, departments or archaeology departments, you know, in major universities, has never seen one of these. And lo and behold, I'm looking at it, and uh, you know, and I brought it to Robert's attention, and uh, and and they went out there and 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 they yanked the linchpin because because there were kids out there on a certain thing. We didn't want anybody to get hurt. And underneath that boulder that was on that linchpin that came crashing down was a map. I'm going to let Robert tell you about what this meant because it led to it led to another area. But this is this, the sign up, this, the signs and everything that you were alluding to earlier. Robert, tell him about this map. Well, as he said, I was out there with uh, my friend Eric, and we found these foundation stones. And both being Vietnam veterans, we knew that this was a human structure, and it was set up to not be noticed. And it had all these stickers and. I asked uh, the man that had been out there digging. He says, no, I never go over there. It's filled with rattlesnakes. I don't go over there. Hmm, says I. So, uh, as he said, when Bill was out there, I commented on it. And after he did his exposure work and I stood back and I took a picture, I said, that's in the shape of a 16-foot cross with three-foot wide beams. Holy moly. That's not just rocks. That's a cross. And I only know one reason they're going to make a trap out of a cross. And as he said, we knew the linchpin, and we popped that puppy, and down came about a couple tons of boulders and flattened on top of that mesa that had been stacked stones for a wall. And they had constructed a map, and in the top right corner of the map is a cross. At the bottom left corner of the map is a turtle. I said, hmm, well, I thought about it, and I had previously marked a piece of ground for Bill to dig in. I said, this is weird. All the others, they're natural. This is weird. And after he dug for two, three days through hard caliche, what did you pull up, Bill? Well, I, I pulled, there was a triangle. There was a, there was a, uh, uh, a, a, a stone that looked like a weaver's needle that had a triangle on it and it had a heart on it. Uh, and, um, uh, and his triangle, the first triangle was pink. Right. Yeah. Right? Pink stone. And so I yeah, thought about stone. that. And I thought about that, and I looked at this map, and I documented it as fast as I could because this map wasn't drawn in like a petroglyph. They had taken ink. They had prepared this rock surface like a wall of a church. 
and drawn on it in detail with ink and little words. Then they covered it in mineral paint like they would have used in a church or a mission. And they had white, red, and deep dark red, kidney red. And they made these three different layers of maps and signs and symbols all over it, which I then ca captured. Some of it was washing away. It's been out there for hundreds of years. This goes back to the fact that one of the symbols on there was a symbol that stands for 50 paces by the king's size, which was 33 inches. So not a full yard or a meter. And we knew it had a Roman a number three in front of it. And so that meant go out 150 paces. Oh, okay. And we did, we found markers and things. I said, okay, we need to find the scale of the map, the orientation of the map. I knew that the cross on the map represented where we were standing. And um, I took Jason and we went out and to where this triangle indicated, it turned out that the edge of the map that had the triangle on it was the shape of a mesa, which I recognized. And so we went out to that, went around to the tip where it showed it. And there's a 20 foot turtle out there carved into the mountain. I know exactly where everything is that was on that map. Okay, so the, the heart imagery is Symbolic of the uh, kings of Spain. Yeah, the, the, here's here's a scenario. If you wanted to have a claim and you were going to pay taxes on, king got fifty percent of your gold, and he would say you got to have a heart that we can see. So you'd have to have some marker to get people in off of the main trail, and we discovered they had dug a cave shaped like a triangle with a boulder on the inside that you would see that was white. So that when you were off a long distance, you'd see this black triangle, the white dot in the middle, which says treasure's buried over here. And that's how, when we got to this turtle and we found it, we knew that being as big as it is, it was to be seen from a distance and it was the real deal. Now, heart right next to that is about a meter across. But the hearts that we're right, we're, we're looking for secret entities, caches, buried items of interest are small enough to fit in your hand. That's what Bill meant by his earlier comment. Scale tells you how far away you are from your where you're going. And those little hearts are used like little arrowheads. They're literally laying in the direction you gotta look and you could probably see it from where you're standing. And also I have markers that are shaped like home plates. And we have triangles, diamonds, you know, four sided little object diamonds, all kinds of these. That's what we have to start reading. So once once we get on a site like that, it's called run around, take pictures, get GPS coordinates, find bearings, which way to go, and let's start mapping this out. You know, document it, just like an archaeologist. A lot of work there, huh, Bill? Well, yeah, <laughs> but it's fun. It, it, it sounds like you have this repetition of patterns, which I, I find interesting. The heart, the, the the heart mountain, the uh, triangles that are sh shaped like uh, the mesas. And, and, you know, when uh, mm -hmm. Gary David was a guest with us, he he, he was talking about the importance of uh, the mesas and um, how they were uh, um, aligned with. Um, Orion's belt. It's the artwork that's found in the 
uh, Desert Southwest just sounds um, uh, uh, captivating. It, it could be considered can be considered spiritual. The whole process yeah. was was how do you define your humanity when you're surrounded by wilderness? And like I said, we're going to have that challenge ahead of us when we go to other planets. And it's going to have to be something that can last generations. It might be that you'll pass before the next person comes where you've been. How are you going to leave that message? How's it going to be universal over time and language? And so what I'm saying is that there was a lexicon that the king ordered. There was a lexicon Mm -hmm. used by the dons. And then there were the actual workers that had their own little bitty lingo, their own little stones and their own little marks. And that was more ethnic. Yeah, it just seems like there's an overlapping of n- many cultures there. And you would have to take a, a lot of time to um, <laughs> maybe differentiate uh, between what each group was conveying. Well, let me give you a quick example. The the people in the northern part, like the one that we're talking about in Colorado currently, uh, has what you call an owl. And in the treasure site clubs, like in Facebook, you'll see a lot of chat, and now and then they'll say, did you find any owls? And they're looking at little, little carvings and trees and such, or petroglyphs. But what he has is, is something that was carved by blasting rock. And it's big. I mean, it's big. He's got a pyramid out there. I've never seen a pyramid any other place than where I currently am. Mine was made out of stacked stones. His is carved in living rock. And that sucker is 14 feet tall. Why does it need to be 14 feet? Because when you're down where he starts from hiking, you're down thousands of feet. Hmm. A couple of miles away. And you got to be able to see it from down there on a horse with a saddlebag telescope. Say, yep, that's the right peak. We want to go there. You see a seven-foot duck. You see a 14-foot pyramid. That's where we're going to go. That's the start position. And you'll have a map that might say X marks a spot, but that's, you don't know what that meant. So they keep little <laughs> notebooks a two, back home. And a 200-foot owl. A 200-foot owl. It's incredible what's in this canyon. So that is colloquial. That is That is what they did. I don't have any big owls in the superstitions. And that's the difference between territory with free-running water, woods, and all that, and where we are, we got rattlesnakes and cactus. There's just so much out there and so many things to check out and so many things to record and survey and sift through that, yeah, in the end, one man, one lifetime would never get anything accomplished. So it takes a lot of people to pull together the resources and start being able to sift it out and write. Once you start getting out there and you start realizing how much going on, you don't feel so out in the middle of the desert, out in the middle of nowhere. You see a full thriving community that was happening at one point. So, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff out there for sure. Yeah, and J- Jason, is um, any of this area um, under threat of uh, you know, a housing development being uh, built or you know, are you okay 
uh, for the time being to do, do your research there? Um, from what I understand right now, we're okay, but eventually they're going to be turning it into a state park. So then there's going to be probably, you know, places for people, campsites and bathrooms and whatever other kind of stuff. So you won't have the, we won't have the privacy like that. I don't know how far off that is, but yeah, eventually there's always that chance um, that could happen soon. If I could comment on that, Mark, there, there is sure. about, uh, about two and a half miles from where we're at. As I said, that we, that we have another group of individuals that have locked onto some stuff. Not too far from there um, is a housing development. Uh, so they're starting to encroach up into uh, uh, the areas that we're at now. It's going to take it's going to take a while, but you know, you, you know, growth growth is inevitable. Uh, another thing I just found out the other day uh, from uh, uh, having been in contact with um, uh, these other uh, individuals was that um, there's a natural spring out there. You know, you you see. You, you know these guys were hardy people. I mean, they're out. In the, this is the desert. Uh, you know, you you. I grew up in Palm Springs. And, you know, you need water. You know, and in the summertime it gets hot. Mm-hmm. It's 118 degrees out there. It's hot. Well, <laughs> I was just uh, I was just uh, I was just made a, uh, aware of a of a natural spring that's not very far away. That 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 goes back um, several hundred years. In fact, I'm told that it even appears on uh, uh, on a possible map. Uh, uh, um, but uh, so that took away because I was always wondering, well, how these guys survive out there? They no water, you know. If it rained, there was water. But now I, I, I have learned that there's a natural spring out there. Didn't know that. So um, it makes so it makes all the sense in the world uh, that they could survive uh, doing what they were doing. But uh, but there are developments that are going to start encroaching in. So we need to you know we need to get all of our stuff done as quickly as possible. Okay, and uh, we're just just, uh, Jason was just talking about the uh, possibility of the the, uh, uh, your area uh, being incorporated as uh, part of the uh, park service. How has the the uh, you know, park uh, people been in uh, being of uh, assistance to you. Uh, you know, we kind of touched on that. Or are they uh, conducive to? Uh, what you're doing, uh, you get you know a little bit of the uh, uh, you know, when the treasure hunters were uh, excavating uh, Blackbeard's um, one of his ships. You know the government wanted uh, like ha- half of the the collection or you know so, something like that. Uh, are you encountering some kind of interference like that where you know uh, you know they pat you know well yeah there's laws on yeah, whatever they, supposedly gets found that I mean the government's entitled to their half or three quarters or yeah. whatever they want 
you know, there's more laws that go into that. But, I mean, we're kind of just out there scanning, you know, we're recording. So until we get permission to do anything, that's all we're really doing. So there's not a lot of, you know, pushback. They're not out there, you know, we're not getting in trouble. It's, you know, the, um, if anything, you know, we're just kind of out there trying to help out protect stuff ourselves. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's all about getting the, the legal documents to put together to file claims and get the government okay and be like, yeah, okay, you guys go do what you want. You paid your money. And then you you know you do your thing, and then when you're done, you've paid your deposit, so they go back and fix it all. So, and as long as you're following the rules, they're okay. Yeah, let me make a comment here. Sure. Um, it's part of the difference that you were asking about earlier, actually, and that is that um, we use non-destructive uh, analysis. If somebody wants to come in behind us, they can see it version. That's the one thing. The second thing is. We're not convinced yet that we're going to find any treasure. And we're we're trying to learn this communication system because the only way you're going to find anything is to follow it and go where you might find something that's never been opened. And the only way we're going to be able to do anything is to find an ore body where we can file for a mineral claim, a load claim, proceed to open that up. Uh, and it has to be having gold or silver, some mineable thing that you can show profit with. It might not make enough to to cover your expenses, but you can then, say, open up some tunnels. But in terms of it being guaranteed that you're going after treasure, there are no guarantees because of the point you raised, which is somebody could have made it back. It could have been empty. They don't rub out the proof or the evidence of it when they leave, right? They just fill the meals up and run. So what are the odds that somebody's going to to uncover something that's never been found? Pretty slim. On the other hand, what's the right way of going about this? So what we're doing is we file claims, us and, and the other organizations, and we're working where there's known resources for minerals, and we're working that, and we're documenting everything that we find on the site. Now, oddly enough, the laws regarding the ocean are different from the laws on land. And the laws on the ocean make it negotiable who's going to get what, and they usually end up in an international court, like the Hague. However, on land, the landowner owns it, and you have all these laws involved with like the uh, American Antiquities Act, which says if you mm-hmm. find something there that's over 100 years, the landowner owns it or the government gets it. So if they find bullion, anybody, it belongs to the government. That's it. Same with coins. It belongs to them. But if you find, for example, um, what, what Walt's called a cache, basically he goes and concentrates his gold Right, gets it out of the rocks and everything, forms a pile, leaves it in a pile to come back to later and take with him. That's native ore. It's never been really processed by human beings. It's just rocks. That's open to us because we file a claim on that. And that's what we pay for. And that's our way of doing business because we know 
that it may come that we have to say, okay, look, we found something of very significance. We need to bring out your experts, and then they'll do that. And that's one of the reasons we shifted away from the wilderness area, because we can go ahead and dig using the claim system, because we know that there's gold where we're at. It's there. You can see it with a naked eye. And in different, different mining clubs, in fact, have actually tried to gain control of this site. You know, different clubs. Yeah. So they know it's there. They don't know the history. And we're going to document the history. And the other thing that we find is that I don't know the justification, but there is no real interest in the Spanish-American history in the Southwest. As far as they're concerned, history began when it became the United States of America. And so we may have a mission or two that you can go visit, but you're not going to see a whole lot about, oh, here's where the Spanish were and so forth. They have some artifacts in Tucson, for example, and a historical society that were donated, but um, you're not going to see where Coronado went on a trail near you and be able to hike it. It's just not done. And part of that is it goes back to um, after the Alamo, there was a second battle. And um, in that second battle, they killed all the women and children as well as the defendants. And that created great animosity in the Southwest for the Spanish culture. And it's still alive, I'm afraid to say. So this site's being ignored in terms of archaeology. When I talk to the archaeologist of the state, federal, or county, uh, the reaction is, is it Native American? No, no, we're, we're not seeing the evidence in Native American. No, I'm not going to worry about that. It's just trash and deal with it as you will. That's been the general response. So we're trying to capture and protect it, document it. It, um, Robert, if you know, th those uh, uh, what were they? The the uh, silver crosses that Scott Walter uncovered in uh, I think it was Arizona uh, uh, had the hundreds of years of caliche. You know, that uh, that uh, oh, if I remember the show correctly. Yeah, I I think that was it. And there, uh, those, you know, caliche grows at a, a certain rate per year, and you know they were able to calculate. Okay, uh, you know, like the date that's on the uh, cross is several hundred years old. Yeah, it, it it seems seems like you know here we have another case of you know. Government officials, um, you know, saying, uh, "Okay, there is no history prior to uh, America, uh, you know, Americans settling this area, and get a you know, few Native Americans running around." But you know, it's ba basically uh, all, all American uh, property. Uh, it, 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 it seems like you're dealing with another sample, like Scott. Uh, it, it might be you know, some other examples of, uh, you know, like conquistadors making it into other parts of the country. Uh, 
Um, you know, this, you know, you're, or, you know, if you do find, you know, the treasure and all, all, all this, and, you know, you you are rewriting American history to show that, you know, there, there was a lot of old world, uh, people coming to, Mm -hmm. Uh, the new world in the 16th, 17th century. Yes. And um, the the, the consensus that I have is that a lot of this is greed-driven. Basically, if people are going to get excited about it, it's going to be value, and that's when the government wants to step in. Mm -hmm. But if it's just going to be a money drain on them to kind of protect it, and they don't feel that it's in their invested interest to protect it, they won't. And the problem with the Native Americans is they'll take them to court. And so they protect themselves on one end. On the other end, they seize it in order to gain profit. Uh, what if you have... really backwards. <laughs> you know, if in Britain, at least they give you a finder's, a finder's fee to give you the value of it. Uh, what if... Uh, some of the documents say that uh, this is papal property. Oh, uh, okay. Or you, or yes, do, what, what do you do then? Well, when you say these documents, that is a, a hub, isn't it? Because what I've said so far is that the documents that exist and uh, they weren't necessarily turned over to the church. It was uh, owned and operated okay. by those who migrated across. Now, the difficulty becomes what you're describing is an inventory list. And when they were doing shipping and the laws at sea were in power, they would ship back to uh, Spain in advance or separately, kept a record back what they put on the ship. They could tell the king in Spain what was on the ship that got lost, down to the bar, down to the ounce, whatever. And by name, who the people were that were on it. And that's the records that these people finding ships at sea use to help them locate it. And then they go to court and say, I know the inventory I was looking for, and this is on the inventory. This is a cross with the person's name on it. This was the person that was on this ship. They can find evidence. Ours is nameless. Nobody ever recorded in writing how much was buried where. The closest that I've come to that is in my articles online, and I talk about what's called um, the Peralta heart, or the, the Latin heart. And in Latin, not Spanish, it records, using medieval Roman numerals, how much has been buried. I don't know. I haven't been allowed to dig it up. But I know this. It's not going to be valuable if you're talking about ounces. It's one ounce of gold that's buried at the bottom of that saguaro out there that Bill was talking about. But... Um, a 14-pound bar? Oh, heck yeah. I'm going to make that good, put that on the map, right? One ounce coin or a bar of 14 pounds. You you make the judge. So my mind, if they're going to go to the work of creating a, an intricate encrypted map, they're going to be talking about bullion. And that would be on inventory. And if I use the Latin heart and say it's indicating bullion, I could take that to court. But the law already exists, the Antiquities Act. It belonged to the government. I'd be told I was right, and that would be the end of it. Hmm. Okay. All right, thanks. Here you go. (laughs) 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're down to about the last three minutes, and I, I want to give everyone a uh, chance to plug any, you know, like the Lost for Gold Facebook page or, you know, the movie. Um, you know, that will be at, uh, at the two, you know, the documents, uh, your explorations. Uh, you know, where can people find out more about uh, your exciting work, the names of your books? Well, and... well Robert, you can tell about your Robert. Uh, tell about your your two books. Well, I I did two books that I call um, Reading for Alta Maps, and you can find them at Lulu.com if you want a hard copy. They also have the e-copy, which you can get much cheaper. Uh, it's price is high because they print on demand. That way I'm not burning paper for no reason and I don't have to stock them. Uh, you can also go to USA.com and read them basically for free, you know, the concatenated versions. Um, the movie, as he said, if you uh, go in there and do a search, Lust for Gold, you'll find the website, you'll see the snippets, and they can play the movie. And it's just advertising of what they're willing to release about what's in it, about our journey. Yeah, Mark, okay. we were supposed to uh, – Mark, we, we had got accepted into the Arizona International Film Festival, which was supposed to be held this October, um, but um, it got pushed back to April. Uh, we got accepted in the International Film Festival in Spain. Uh, that's all on the uh, Facebook page. So anybody wants to know about the uh, the movie, uh, go to go to Facebook, type in Lust for Gold, and uh, all the information is there. And, and uh, I'm assuming at the time that it's going to be distributed – so that people can watch it uh, on cable, they'll tell about it. I mean, they'll they'll post it there. Okay. Well, uh, we are get, getting pretty close to the end of the show. I just want to thank Wild Bill Blackwell and Robert and Jason Kesselring for being our guests tonight. It's nice to be back doing live shows, and I just want to thank everyone for. Uh, yeah, uh, helping us to return to the airwaves and look forward to seeing everyone next Tuesday and have a great week. See you next. Uh, keep checking the website for all the upcoming shows as well. Just go to barbaradelong.com. We'll get the archive to you uh, tomorrow afternoon. And thank you again. <laughs>